I have been on the phone a couple times this weekend with a couple husbands. And both of them have wives that are going through serious health issues. One has a wife who's going through a, a back problem that she has to have a surgery for. And, and they're really asking for prayer because if the surgery goes wrong, she could end up paralyzed. Another husband had a wife with some issues in her digestive system, and they had to do an operation on her. And one thing I noticed about both husbands, and I noticed about me too a few years back when Carolyn was diagnosed with melanoma skin cancer, you get tunnel vision as a husband, as well you should in a moment like that. Your wife, if she wasn't there already, she jumps right to the top of your priority list and everything else in your world just fades away because you're so concerned about the health of your bride. That's the way it should be for a good husband. You should be concerned about the health of your bride. And I, I think about those instances and I think about the picture that the Bible uses that describes the church, the worldwide church as the bride of Christ. And I can't help but wonder if he looks at his bride and when he sees some of the things that are ravaging her body, if he doesn't get that same kind of concern and, and brokenness as he looks at his bride, as he wants her to be healthy. I think one of those cancers, if you will, one of those sicknesses that sometimes finds its way into the church that greatly concerns her husband, Jesus Christ, is the sickness of disunity. The sickness of division and fighting between churches and between believers in those churches. And so tonight, as we continue our series, God in Me, the Holy Spirit, I want to talk about the fact that Jesus Christ and the Father sent the Holy Spirit partially to bring unity, to make unity a reality. And we got to start at the foundation. We got to start with why is unity so important to God? And it's important to God, it's important to us because God himself is a perfect unity. As we look at God the Father, God the Son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit, there is perfect unity there. That's the foundation. In fact, Trinity as a word doesn't sum it up because Trinity only indicates three persons, which is true. But it's one God and three persons, so tri-unity would actually be a better word. And I want you to listen to what Matt Woodley said. I like the way he puts this about the tri-unity. He said, God is a party of praise and honor and glory. You ever think of God as a party of praise and honor and glory? The members of the Trinity exist and work together in perfect unity and oneness. There's a perfect sense of giving honor to one another. There is not even a trace of jealousy, insecurity, hostility, or selfishness. I think that's beautiful. God is relationship. God is unity. But I don't want you to just take Matt Woodley's word for it. I want to look at a couple passages in Scripture that explain this unity in the triunity. The first one's in John. 
It's John chapter 13, verse 31. It says, when he was gone, that's Judas. Judas had just gotten up from the Last Supper to go betray Jesus and set in motion all the events that would lead to the cross. Jesus says, when he was gone, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God, the Father, is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. Now, that's a lot of glorifying in one verse, so let, let's break that. <laughs> yeah. I don't know how many times it's in there, four or five, so let's break that down. What's going on here is as Jesus the Son obeys his Father's will and goes to that cross to die for our sins and rise again, he brings glory to his Father because he obeys him. And the Father's going to bring glory to the Son because as the Son obeys his Father, the Father's going to accept that sacrifice, that death, and to show that, he's going to raise him from the dead. Perfect teamwork, perfect unity. You also see this as the two of them relate to the Holy Spirit. John 15, 26 says, when the counselor, that's the Holy Spirit, comes... Whom I will send to you. Who's saying this? Jesus. Whom I will send to you from the Father. The spirit of truth who goes out from the Father. He will testify about me. So what you see here is the Holy Spirit is sent from Jesus. And he's sent from the Father. And as he comes into the world, what's he going to do? What, what does he do? According to the last part of that verse. He testifies about Jesus. So he obeys the Father and the Son and he points us back to Jesus. Again, perfect teamwork. Perfect unity within that trinity. And here's the thing. It ought to humble us and blow our minds. As profound and deep as that unity within that triunity is, that's the same unity he wants to characterize the life of the believer. John 17, Jesus prayed it. Verse 20 said, I pray for those who will believe in me, that all of them may be one. Now that's enough that he prays that we would be one, but he goes even further. Not just one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. He doesn't say just let them be one. He says let them be one like we're one. That is some serious unity that Jesus is praying for in the body. May they also be in us so that, and here's one of the main reasons why he wants that unity, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It's obvious God wants unity to characterize the life of his children. So we're going to start out by talking about inward unity, unity between believers. And a little bit later on, we're going to talk about outward unity, that God wants unity restored between himself and lost people. But first, let's start with believers. And let's start with local churches. And one of the questions I think we got to wrestle with as we think about ourselves as a local church, as we think about local churches all being together as one worldwide church, do you see teamwork or do you see a turf war? Do you see teamwork or do you see a turf war? It's obvious what the Holy Spirit wants because in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, listen to what it says. 
It says, we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. How many bodies are Christians baptized into? One. And baptism here is not water baptism. It's the spirit including us in the body of Christ the moment we're saved. One body by one spirit. But turf wars have been going on as long as, you remember Paul wrote to a church in Corinth. They were already having turf wars. We're just within decades of Jesus being around. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. And here he goes to explain the problem. He says, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. Quarrels in the church are nothing new. But here he breaks it down. He says, some of you are saying, I follow Paul. Some of you are saying, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Cephas or Peter. Still another, sounding very spiritual, I'm sure I follow Christ. But then he asks a question. He says, is Christ divided? He doesn't give the answer. You guys know what the answer to that is? No. There is one body. And this turf war that was going on in Corinth continues to this day. I've got a friend from another state who told me that his church moved. And they moved into a different neighborhood of town that was closer to another church. And within a few weeks of them moving there, he got a call from the pastor of that other church. The pastor was fuming. You know what he was so upset about? Because this church didn't call him first and say, hey, we're moving into the neighborhood. I'm very upset that you didn't call me and let me know that you were going to be here. That makes me shake my head. I talked to a friend who's a pastor in Michigan. Told him about some of the teamwork that's going on in the quad cities out here. He said, man, that would never fly here, at least not right now and not with a lot of, lot of prayer because churches act like little businesses. Pastors don't talk to each other. They compete for the same people and it's all about business. It's all about business. And I think about that whole mindset and what I want to say is Business is a horrible metaphor for, for the local church. We are not businesses in competition. When we see another church that pops up near us, and I know of two that have popped up since we planted our church a year and a half ago. One is in process in Prescott called Lumendeo. Good friend John Wolfinger is launching that. There's another one here in Prescott Valley called the Quest Church. I haven't had the chance to meet that pastor yet, but our mindset should not be, oh man, we're not the newest kid on the block anymore. This is kind of a bummer. There's more businesses coming in to, to horn in on what we're doing. Our mindset should be, there's additional recruits coming to help us in this war against an enemy in a war to save souls that need saved. We should be so excited. I, I think about a war situation, and I've never been in war, so I've only got movies to go on, and this is a fictional war at that, but the first Transformers movie. You remember, 
You remember that early scene where some of the soldiers are out in the desert and that, that crazy scorpion-looking Decepticon named Scorponok is attacking them. And they have to call in additional recruits and, and that plane starts coming in and you, and you don't see those guys on the ground being like, oh man, those guys are gonna get the glory for what happens here. I wish they wouldn't show up here. I, I really wish they weren't here. That's ridiculous, right? Those guys on the ground are like, yes, bring the rain, baby, bring the rain. And they drop that napalm on that scorpionock and, and they're thankful that those additional recruits are there. That's how we ought to feel when another church pops up. Thank you, Jesus, that churches continue to pop up and help us to multiply as a church, to plant more churches and send out more missional communities. And we're seeing more and more that churches are getting it. They're getting that mindset around here and around the world. I think just the fact that we're meeting in this building, how easy would it have been for the Ridge Church who has the primary lease on this building to say, no way. We don't need no startup church messing up our, our building on Sunday nights. You go, go find a big rent place somewhere and, and start out like we did. How awesome it was that they let us meet for three months for free. And then they gave us an incredibly reasonable rate after that. How awesome is that? I think about our missional communities. There are 11 of them out there now led by people from five different churches in our, our town, working together to show Jesus love in tangible ways. I love that. Churches are saying it's not about Sunday morning or Sunday evening filling our chairs. It's about reaching our community together. And this Thursday, some of you say, hey, I've, I've been in a missional community or I've heard about them and I'm interested in maybe leading one in my neighborhood. This Thursday, we start our sixth round. It's a nine-week training for people that say, I'm feeling called to lead a missional community. And we've already got a family sitting right here that's gonna launch one in Mayer. Got a family that wants to launch one in Kirkland. We've got Andrew who wants to launch one down at ASU. And since we've talked last, Scott and I met with Mike Medlin, who's going to be a missionary to the Philippines. He's going to do Christian radio for those English-speaking kids over there. That's what they speak. But when we met with him, number one, we're, we're going to start supporting him as a missionary of the church next door. We're going to start at a small level. But number two, he said, hey, I've been looking for a way to reach my coworkers in the neighborhood we live in. Could I go through that missional community leader training? <laughs> Philippines. Who saw that coming? God is in the business of multiplication. Night of worship last week. How awesome was that? Wasn't that great to go sit down there with people from who knows how many churches and just praise Jesus, praise God together. Say, hey, it ain't about my church, it's about God. It's about Jesus, it's about the Holy Spirit. I love it. And part of what I wanna say here, when it comes to this unity between churches, there are some things that are worth fighting for. There are some things that we believe that we have to hold on to tightly. Okay, and I'm talking about things like this is the authoritative word of God. This is the supreme authority in our lives. There is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ, fully man and fully God, died for our sins and rose again. The Holy Spirit is God. He indwells and empowers believers. Mankind was created in God's image but has fallen into sin and is lost. 
The only way to restore that relationship with God is through faith in Jesus Christ's death in our place and his resurrection. There's one worldwide church that expresses itself through local churches. Works cannot save us. The saved will spend forever with the Lord and those who do not trust in Jesus Christ will spend forever in torment apart from him. We cannot compromise on any of those hills. Those are hills worth dying on. But what I want to say is there's a whole bunch of other things that we all got to hold a little more loosely. We all got to hold a little more graciously. And I'm talking about things like tongues and healing and prophecy. How do they work and do they work and stuff like that? What's the exact timing of end time events? And if you've ever talked to 10 Christians, you're going to get 10 different timelines. I'm telling you, how often do we do communion at our church? Is a big church better or is a small church better? Is it better to meet in a house or in a building like this? Is it better to be missional or attractional? And there's a ton more of these kind of issues that I want to say, hey, yeah, know where you stand on them, study them, find what you believe. Because I'm not saying we all got to be the same. Unity is not uniformity. doesn't mean we're all the same. Know what you believe, but express it graciously as you talk to other believers in Jesus Christ. You don't have to be like, well, when you've been saved another 10 years and grow in your maturity, you'll see it the way I do. (laughs) You can say it more like, this is how I believe, this is how I lean on this particular issue. I know we're different, but we're brothers and sisters in Christ, and that's okay. Unity, not uniformity. To say, how do I know if I'm playing this unity between churches out? Well, one way you can know is when you have a conversation with somebody from another church and they're excited about something that God's doing there. Like maybe a bunch of people got saved or baptized at their weekend service. Or maybe they just had a missions trip where a bunch of blind people got healed or who knows what. And they they just can't wait to tell you. Here's the test. Are you a unifier or a divider? When they tell you that, can you be genuinely happy that God used their church that way? Can you celebrate with them? Or while they're talking, are you loading up your, your cash with all the things God's been doing at your church so you can try to one-up them? Like, yeah, that's cool, but let me tell you what God's been doing at my church. That's one way you can know if you're a unifier or a divider. Another way you can know is if you're talking with someone that goes to another local church and there's this awkward tension the whole time because you're both trying to convince the other person to go to your church because it's better. Can we not just listen and say, hey, we're not in competition. We're two teammates that just happen to be at different outposts in the kingdom and that's all right. Those are some good litmus tests. God wants unity between local churches because they're all expressions of one worldwide church. The Holy Spirit wants that because he baptized us into one church. But he also wants unity between individuals in those churches. Not just the churches, but individuals getting along within those churches. That's part of why he gives us spiritual gifts, spiritual abilities. And he doesn't give any one of us all of them. Why does he do that? 
Yeah, we, we get proud for unity, though. Yeah, he wants us to lean on each other. We need each other, and that's going to take unity. So let's, let's talk about spiritual gifts for just a, just a moment here. First thing, he decides who gets what gifts. And every believer gets at least one. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 11. It's talking about spiritual gifts. It says, all of these gifts are the work of one and the same spirit, and he gives them to each one just as he determines. There's no one in here that believes in Jesus Christ that doesn't have a spiritual gift. And we don't pick what they are. The Holy Spirit determines what gifts we get. We're not going to spend a lot of time in these verses. There are a ton of resources out there where you can dive in depth as to what each spiritual gift means and even some quizzes that we can tell you about after. If you don't know what's my spiritual gift, some ways to help you figure it out. But just a couple of the passages, Romans 12 talks about exhortation, giving, leadership, mercy, prophecy, service, teaching. 1 Corinthians 12, administration, apostle, discernment, faith, tongues, healing, helps, knowledge, miracles, interpretation, wisdom. And then Ephesians 4, evangelism and pastor. Holy Spirit picks which one of those gifts we get. Here's the deal, though. This is where we're going to camp tonight. He gives them for the good of of all. Okay, he doesn't give them for your glory or my glory. He gives us gifts for the good of the body. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 7. As each one, the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. It's for the good of the whole body. And on top of that, Paul tells us we're supposed to use them in love, which if you remember a couple weeks ago, that's one of the fruits of the Spirit. One of the things that only he can bring about in our lives. Remember how Paul said it so boldly? 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. Both of those are pretty annoying. If I, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I don't have love, I'm just annoying. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I can have a faith that can move mountains, now that's pretty awesome. That's an awesome list, but what's he say? But have not love? Nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, not just part of it, if I sell my house and live on the street so I can give everything to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, is this person committed but have not love, I gain nothing. And all of a sudden, we start to realize that no matter what gifts we have, if we're not using them in love for the common good, it doesn't mean anything. And I think about, the, for you sci-fi fans, my wife and I just saw the Avengers, but I'm going to go old school to the Spider-Man series for a second, because I got a new one coming out too, but it's not the same guy, which is kind of disappointing. But the difference <laughs> between Spider-Man and the Green Goblin or Spider-Man and Doc Ock is not that one has powers or gifts and the other one doesn't. They both got powers, skills, 
The difference between a hero and a villain is the hero uses his skills and his gifts for the good of all, where the villain is all about numero uno, his glory, his wealth, his fame. And we've all got to ask ourselves, how are we using the gifts, the resources, the powers that God has instilled in us? Is it really for the good of others or is it for my own glory? Is it to build my own kingdom? And I thought, how do you know that? How do you know if you're using your gift for me or if I'm using it for the glory of all? Are you using your gift for you or are you using it for the good of all? I think a couple questions help. One is, am I just as content using my gift when I don't get recognized for it as I am when I do get recognized? Because if you leave feeling kind of bummed, after you use your gift because no one said, hey, great job, boy." Chances are there's a party that's doing it for you. You do it for God and the good of those other people. It doesn't matter whether people recognize you or not. Another test, am I just as passionate about doing what I do for God's kingdom with a small group of people as I would be in a large group? Those are some tests that can help us know who am I doing it for? This unity between individuals in the church is so very important. Here's the bottom line. If we're not unified, if there's a bunch of disunity and division, we're falling right into Satan's trap. He's the originator of disunity. Before he looked at God and said, I want what you got, the universe knew nothing of disunity and division. But Satan says, what you've given me, God, is not enough. I want to be like you. And God threw him out of heaven. You remember Satan took one-third of the angels with him. That was where disunity began. So if we practice disunity as a way of life, we're following in Satan's footsteps. We're playing his game. And I see him laughing his head off when we do that. Paul knew this. You remember in 1 Corinthians, there's a guy sleeping with his dad's wife? Paul confronted him, and evidently between 1 and 2 Corinthians, the guy repented. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul says, hey, if you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Why was it so important that they forgive this guy? In order that Satan might not outwit us. For we are not unaware of his schemes. That's his biggest plot against us. If he can get us divided, wasn't that a whole theme in the Avengers? We can get Iron Man and Captain America and the Hulk fighting against each other. They'll forget about Loki, the bad dude from Thor's crazy planet, and they'll fight with each other. It's the same with the church. If we can get just ticked off at each other in here or other churches, guess what? We're not going to be very effective in winning souls for Jesus Christ. And Satan knows that. Be aware. Don't let him outwit us. Some of us have been through some hard stuff and we're saying, hey, what if I do my part? But the other person's not responding, like on this unity thing. That's not your worry. Paul said in Romans 12, 18, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you. Am I, am I doing all I can in the power of the Holy Spirit to promote unity? And I want to encourage us all to look at our lives. Look back 
And look right now at your relationships with believers as you walk with them and ask God to show you what kind of trail am I leaving? Is it a trail that's characterized by unity and peace? Or is it a trail that's characterized by division and factions and envy and slander and brokenness? If it's a ladder, some of us need to get on our knees before God and say, God, I'm sorry. I've fallen into Satan's trap. I want to be a unifying agent in the power of the Holy Spirit. So God cares about inward unity between believers, churches and individuals, but he also cares about outward unity. And what I mean by that is between himself and the lost, those who haven't yet come to Jesus. And you see this heart of God way back in the Garden of Eden. What's the first thing he did? I mean, you think about perfect unity, Adam and Eve walking in the garden in the cool of the day, talking with God. Don't you wish you could see what that was like? Like God's got home videos when we get there. They're probably digital files by now. He's probably got something even further down the road. Could you imagine just getting to watch Adam and Eve walking in the garden, talking with God? That's perfect unity until they disobeyed him. And they hide. And what's the first thing God did? He called out for him. He didn't blow up the planet as he could have. He said, where are you? He knew where they were, but he wanted to restore that relationship. And the Holy Spirit continues that desire to this day. Let me show you a couple ways he goes about restoring that unity between God and the lost. The first one, while it's painful, he has a good motive for it. John 16, 8, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world of guilt. Now, none of us like that, that nagging feeling that something's not right, that I need forgiveness, but why does he do it? To drive us to Jesus Christ and trust in him so that we can have that relationship with God unified. Next verse, Andrew. When the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared... He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is responsible for rebirth or the second birth. And what that means is while we become physical children by being born physically, we only become children of God in the truest sense of that word as we're born spiritually. And it's the Holy Spirit that does that. He brings spiritually dead people to life so they can be unified with God. Then the third one that the Holy Spirit does, he's a seal and he's a deposit. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. You also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. I want to stop there on the seal. He's a seal. And there's two pictures that drive that home. One is, a lot of times, some people even still do today, but in ancient times, it's more common. You'd, You'd write a letter or a scroll, and you'd put some hot wax on it, and you'd have a unique emblem on a ring that you would then push into that wax to say, this one's mine. This came from me. 
That's what the Holy Spirit does in believers. When he comes into our lives, when we believe, it's like God saying, this one's mine. But he's also a deposit. That verse goes on and says, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's position. So just like when you buy a house and you put down 10000 or 20000 and that guarantees that, hey, that house is going to be mine, when God puts the Holy Spirit inside of you, he has a down payment saying, hey, salvation is yours. You're going to get everything I promise to you, and nothing can take it away from you. The good news there is it's not dependent on us. Because if it was, God knows we would blow it. He is the down payment. It is dependent on the Holy Spirit. I heard one guy say it this way in a skit one time. I love this. He sat down next to Jesus and he said, I'm so so sorry I let you down, Jesus. And Jesus looks at him and says, I didn't realize you were holding me up. (laughs) That's the right perspective. It's the Holy Spirit that guarantees our salvation. But you see that same passion for unity between God and the lost very clearly in the Apostle Paul. We all know him, right? Chances are a lot of us are saved in this room, maybe all of us, because of the way God used him to spread the gospel. Listen to what he said in Romans 9. And I wish I could have seen Paul as he wrote these words because I imagine him crying. I imagine this paragraph coming out slow and painful. He said, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. It's almost like he has to say, this is really true. This is really how strongly I feel. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. Here you see the Holy Spirit's behind this. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. You hear what he's saying? He's looking at his brothers in Israel and he's saying, I love them so much. So many of them have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ. I love them so much that I could wish myself cut off from Christ who I love with everything in me so that they would be saved. And it makes me wrestle with myself and hopefully it makes you wrestle. When is the last time you shed one tear for the lost people that you know in your life that don't know Jesus, whether they're across the street or around the world, when is the last time you shed a tear for them? Paul was literally willing to give everything for the purpose of these Israelites coming to trust Jesus as their Savior. Paul's gone. The ministry of reconciliation that he expressed there is now ours. That ministry of bringing that message that can unify the lost with God, it's ours. 2 Corinthians 5.17, a lot of us know this first part. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. How awesome is that? You believe in Christ, that old is gone, the new has come. Start fresh. All this is from God who reconciled or brought unity between us to himself through Christ. But how many of us stop right there in that passage? Say, great, I'm in. 
But Paul doesn't stop there. You know what he goes on to say? God gave us that same ministry of reconciliation, of unifying the lost with God. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us, us in this room, May 2012, he's committed the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, his representatives on this planet, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And here's the core of the message of reconciliation that you and I ought to be devoting our lives to spreading. God made him who had no sin, who's that? Jesus Christ to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The message that Jesus took every wrong thought, deed I've ever done before I ever did it on himself and paid for it and rose again. And the only way to reconciliation to God is simple faith. As I close, I wanted to take you guys to the story behind a movie that came out a few years ago. It's, it's a story that's been told for many years in the church as well it should. The movie made about it was End of the Spear. And I always like to say that movie had a really good point to it. <laughs> and I hope that Jim Elliott won't smack me when I get to heaven. I think from his perspective, he's okay with a little humor on this because he an eternal perspective on what happened there. But there were some missionaries down in Ecuador back in the 1950s. And two of the women were named Elizabeth Elliot and Rachel Saint, young women. And you see the pictures up there. Elizabeth is right there on the left. She married Jim, who was another missionary. Rachel's in the middle. That's obviously a little later in her life. And Rachel's brother, Nate, was another missionary in Ecuador. And Jim and Elizabeth got married. They had a little girl named Val. Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and two other men began a mission to reach a, a remote tribe called the Alka Indians. And their first step was to fly an airplane over the tribe and, and shout to them with loudspeakers and send down gifts just to build some goodwill. And they did that for a long time, and then the day came to try to land the plane and talk to these guys, start building that relationship and spread Jesus. Those men landed the plane, and they weren't found till, till days later, floating in that river, pierced with spears by the very ones that they went to reach. And I want you to put yourself in Elizabeth Elliot's shoes, 10-month-old baby, why don't you put yourself in Rachel's shoes, your, your brother that you grew up with, gone. What would you do? How would you feel? I want to tell you what they did. Elizabeth learned the language of that tribe through another local contact. And she went back a couple years later with her now three-year-old daughter and began to live with those people and love them in the name of Jesus for five years. Rachel went back to spend the rest of her life with those people in the name of Jesus. 
You know what happened within nine years of their being there? The gospel of Mark was translated into those people's language. And one by one, they began to give their lives to Jesus. A man named Chemo, who would become pastor in that village, was one of the very men that killed those missionaries. And Rachel Saint allowed that pastor who had killed her brother to baptize two of her children. Now look at that desire in those missionaries for unity between those people and God. And I think a couple things. I think, wow, God, what are my stupid excuses for not sharing the gospel with lost people in my life? And how in the world do they stand up against this? Because they don't. They don't even, there's no comparison. So God, help me lay down my stupid excuses, my stupid bitterness for not loving lost people enough to tell them the news they need. And secondly, it tells me this was not something that Elizabeth and Rachel Saint worked up in their own power. They didn't just grit their teeth and say, hey, we're gonna go win these people that killed our family to Jesus. They must have surrendered their whole beings to Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit and said, have your way in me. Do whatever you want in your power. And I wonder if we share that same heart for lost people to be brought back to God. Or are we sort of apathetic about it? Are we sort of maybe even antagonistic towards lost people? I don't want anything to do with people that don't believe like I believe. We've talked about inward unity between believers and we talked about outward unity between God and lost people. What I want to say, they're not separate issues. They're desperately, intricately connected because if the church is full of disunity between churches and between individuals, We'll never get to this place where we're out there spreading the news that people need to bring unity between them and God. It won't happen. But if we are unified in the power of the Spirit, we'll be an answer to Jesus' prayer in John 17. Remember, the beginning, my prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. As the worship team comes back up and and we prepare for our offering, I want us to go before God. And if you've trusted in Jesus, I want you to ask him to show you, God, what, what, what characterizes my life with other believers? Is it unity or is it fighting and disunity? And if he shows you the ladder, some of us need to lay that down tonight and say, God, I'm sorry. I'm going to start a new path in the power of the Holy Spirit. If I've been playing business when it comes to local church, like my church is better than your church, or being stupid that way, God, show me. Help me to practice teamwork. And do I reflect your passion for restoring unity between lost people? And yourself, God.
What excuses have I allowed to get in there? What rationalizations? Who have I passed that responsibility off to when I know now I am an ambassador of Jesus Christ? I will not pass it off anymore. Some of us need to make that commitment. And there may be some of us in this room that hear about this unity between God and lost people and say, I'm, I'm one of those people. I've been trying to get back to God on my own, but I know nothing I do has done it and nothing can. And I've heard about Jesus who gave it all to pay for my sins tonight. And I want to put my trust in him. I want that unity with God. It's as simple as saying, Jesus, I believe you did that for me. I trust in that. Invite you into my life. It's a simple faith that saves you. But then there's a call on your life at that point. He wants you to, to say as well, be my Lord. Have your way in my life. I saved you. I, I did what it took. You trusted in me. That, that saved you, but I got a better way for you to live your life. You're an ambassador for me now. If there's anybody in here that prayed that, I'd, I'd love to talk with you. I pray for unity, God. Please let unity fall on your worldwide church through the power of the Spirit. Let it fall between individuals. God, as we prepare to give our offering, Lord, I pray that it would just be a simple expression of gratitude for the unity that you have brought when we trusted Jesus. Nothing more, nothing forced. Father, thank you for being a God of unity. In Jesus' name, amen.